Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 147. Psalm 147. This is a psalm that uh, particularly marks the greatness of our Heavenly Father. The goodness of the Lord is really lifted up in what he does in all of these acts and his acts of kindness and mercy and compassion. Uh, The insignificant are not forgotten. Those who are the least are cared for, but also the power of the Lord, both in his love and his authority and his judgments are seen very clearly. So if you're able, would you stand with me, and I'll read Psalm 147. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us today, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, that we would see clearly who you are in this, and the call to praise you for your deeds and your character and all that you are, that, Lord, our hearts would be lifted to you on this particular day, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 147, you'll notice the first couple words and the last couple words are the same. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars and gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre, who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him those who wait for his loving kindness. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons within you. He makes peace in your borders. He satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt with us. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Please be seated. This is God's inspired word for us today. Now, just as an aside, flip back one page and look at the first words of Psalm 146. You'll find, praise the Lord. And the last words of Psalm 146 are, praise the Lord. Psalm 147 is like that. Psalm 148, Psalm 149, Psalm 150. These are a particular grouping of psalms and they all deal with, guess what? Praise the Lord, okay? Pretty much straightforward there. And, and praise the Lord is, it is good to praise the Lord. 
What's the song? It is good to praise the Lord. Okay, I won't sing all that for you. I'm going to sing later. Mm-hmm. I can't wait for that. I bet. Okay. But it's good to praise the Lord. And, and, it, and you know what it does to you? It really changes, in a sense, your countenance. Okay. Now, my, my sister-in-law uh, taught us this phrase. She says, now, don't be a Debbie Downer. You want to be a what? Susie Sunshine. Okay. Now, now, when you praise the Lord, you kind of turn into a Susie Sunshine, and you reflect that. Now, if, you, if you've ever been around somebody who's a Debbie Downer, you know, they're a grumbler and a complainer, and they may have this, they may have perfect skin and great hair and teeth, and they might be beautiful, but their countenance changes them. They seem to look dour. Because they grumble. And the world is just not a good place. They're not spending time thinking about the Lord and praising him. Susie Sunshine, okay, she may be all plain in the world's eyes, but there is a glow about her because she praises the Lord, okay? So that's kind of the way we look at things. It is pleasant. It is pleasing. It is it is good to praise the Lord because it does something to you. Because you're looking beyond yourself to the one who has created you, the one who cares for you, the one who calls you by name and draws you unto himself. He cares enough about you to do all of that. To take you when you were his enemy, when you were in your sin, and bring you up and give you life. And what are you going to do? Are you going to grumble to him? This is praise time, okay? The hymn is very clear. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praise to our God. It is pleasant, and praise is becoming. It's not only becoming to the Lord, it is becoming to the person who's doing the praising. It seems to change them about something. Now, the context of Psalm 147, and really we think of of Psalm 146, 47, 48, 49, and 50 is found in the book of Nehemiah, okay? And, and uh, just to give you the, the quick overview of Nehemiah so we don't have to turn and, and, and go through all of that, there's a lot of comparison between these psalms and the events of the book of Nehemiah. Remember, Nehemiah comes to the king and he's kind of downcast. The king says, why are you so downcast? He says, well, my city and its gates lay in ruin. And the king says, well, go fix it up. And Nehemiah heads the project to fix up the gates and the walls of Jerusalem. And this is after the, the Babylonian captivity. And, and it's been 70 years. The city has sat in ruins, basically. Nehemiah shows up. And, and over the course of 52 days, the walls are rebuilt. Okay, in a fantastic effort. And remember, um, in Nehemiah goes through names all the tribes and who's working. And part of the guys are working, part of the guys are standing guard. And you've got uh, uh, what's-his-face who's trying to disrupt it. Um, anybody remember his name? Sanballat, thank you. Sanballat, who's trying to make a mess of things. And, and Nehemiah's, no, we're going to work and we're going to do this. And it's going to be everybody. And they go through and they name all the names of all the tribes and the people who are working because it's very important that we see all of these things and know who's involved in all of these things. And when we see in Psalm 147, like verse 2, the Lord builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the outcasts. What is happening here, we think that these are psalms and songs written to be sung and played at this time of celebration where the Lord is restoring his people to Jerusalem. Now, we know that 
that this is basically a, uh, we'll call it a two-phase restoration of Jerusalem. You have the rebuilding of the walls, which were, as I said, about 52 days. But it took about 90 years to really restore the Jews back to Jerusalem. Now, they had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. There had been, you know, they had been disobedient, and the Lord said, uh, get it together, and they, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, and they said, no, we're going to chase other gods, and the Lord finally says, okay, you're out of here. Ba- uh, Jerusalem was, was sent in ruins. They were in exile, and as they begin to contemplate the Lord and restore their faith, I mean, the Lord always kept a remnant of people who were faithful to him. They are brought back to Jerusalem uh, by Nehemiah after about 90 years total when they started rebuilding the walls till the time that they were brought back. Now remember, this teaches us very interesting lesson about the Lord, right? We say, Lord, I'm in dire need. The world's going to come to an end unless you act, and you've got to act when? Like in 10 minutes, Okay, and if you don't act, I'm in trouble. And what does the Lord say? Oh, wait, I hate that word. Okay, so, you know, no, Lord, I need, don't you know I need you now? Okay, it's, it's, it, I know that I was negligent in what I did, and it's, it's like, um, uh, okay, uh, I'll tell you this one. Uh, we were in Wilmington, and the hurricane is coming. Okay. Yeah? And we had what most people have on their mortgage is an automatic withdrawal to pay the mortgage. And I got lazy, and I didn't get to the bank. And by the time I got to the bank, because the hurricane was coming, the bank was already closed, and they took out our mortgage anyway. They didn't care about the. And I'm like, Lord, you got to do something. Well, uh, he said, well, why didn't you do something, Rand? Okay, You can't expect me to come and pick up after you when you don't act. Well, it's kind of the same way here. Lord, you've got to hurry up. You've got to act now. And the Lord says, we're going to act. I'm going to act when it's the right and perfect time. Okay? God is what kind of God? I told you I was going to sing again. He's an on-time God. How many of you heard that song before? Well, that's because you go to a Presbyterian church. Okay? (laughs) He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. Okay? Now, he may not come when you want him. But he'll be there right on time. I tell you, he's an on-time God. And the crowd goes, yes, he is. He's still not familiar, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. You can ask the children of Israel trapped at the Red Sea by that mean old Pharaoh and his army. They had all water around them and Pharaoh on their track. And from out of nowhere, God stepped in and cut a highway just like that. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. You can ask the 5,000 hungry souls he fed on the banks of the river with the two fish and the five loaves of bread. What a miracle he performed for the multitude. Oh, what he did way back then, he'll do today for you and me. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. But, see, he's not on time according to me. He's on time according to him. And the, the question is, whose timing is better, Randy's or the Lord? Oh, uh, yeah, okay, the Lord. Well, this psalm describes the culmination of years and generations of prayers. And, and, and how long did the Israelites cry out while they were in bondage? 400, 430 years. And finally Moses goes to the Lord and says, Lord, when are you going to do something? And the Lord says, I'm going to do it right now and I'm going to do it through you. And Moses says, well, can't you find somebody else? Well, here 
the generations have been praying for the Lord for restoration. Get us back to our city, Lord. We know we, we messed up. We know we weren't right with you. And now our hearts are right. Get us back together. And we see things in our own life. Lord, can't, can't you come? Can't you come now? And his timing is not always in line with our timing. But his timing is perfect. And we don't always like that. But it is perfect nonetheless. So this psalm, as I said, like many of the other psalms in this particular grouping, begins and ends with praise. And there are, psalms are very good at this, and, and, and other places in Scripture. When it calls us to praise the Lord, it usually gives us reasons why we should praise the Lord. And that's what this psalm does. It is pleasant, it is fitting, and then it gives us all of this, uh, this long these long reasons as to why we should praise the Lord. He builds up, he gathers, he heals, he binds, he counts, he gives names. The Lord is great, he's abundant in strength, his understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the wicked or the, the afflicted, he brings down the wicked. It's the Lord who does all of these things. Is it pleasant and pleasing and, and, and good to praise him? Yes, why? Because of all of these things that he does. There is something not only good about praising the Lord, there is something inherently pleasant about praising the Lord as well. And the praising of the Lord takes all of us. I mean, not it takes all of us, but it takes all of you as an individual. It's not that hard just to come and come to church with your head. I'm here, I'm going through the motions. I'm praising the Lord. Yeah. Is it over yet? You know, some days we get like that. But the Lord calls us to bring all that we are to him. John Owen, the great, the great Puritan, said, It is easier to bring our heads to worship than it is to bring our hearts to worship. Because the Lord calls us to come with all that we are, that our hearts might be turned towards him, lifted up to him. Worship takes effort and preparation effort and preparation it just doesn't happen you just don't show up and and you're suddenly changed and suddenly focused upon the things of the lord the best thing you could do is is on saturday night is to focus your attention in some passage of praise in god's word just before you go to sleep now i often i do this i'll read over my notes just before i go to sleep because I'm convinced that the last thing you put into your brain at night sticks with you and, and gets in there and, and rumbles around. Kind of empty up there, but it kind of rumbles around, all right? Read something about the praise of the Lord. Read something about his character Saturday night before you go to bed and help prepare your heart for worship so that you might come in ready to go, in the sense of ready to give him praise and to lift up the name of our Heavenly Father. Now the psalm divides three, three sections, 1 to 6, 7 to 11, 12 to 20. It's very simple here, and it tells us all that the Lord does here. Again, it's the Lord who does all of these things in the first section. He binds up, he builds up, he gathers all, all of those things, great things. And then get to verse 4. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Now, I went to a NASA website this week to find out how many stars there were. Because NASA knows those things, right? And they said visible stars 
the number of visible stars is somewhere around 10 to the 21st power. Now, I don't even know what number that is or what name that is, but that's 10 with 21 zeros after that. I remember enough about math to, to, to be able to do that. And God has made, it says, what, what does it say? He counts the number of stars. Not only does he count them, but he gives names to all of them. This is not the star reg- registry that we're talking about here. Okay, This is not that we, we pay the Lord $20 and he comes up with a name. The stars already have names, according to Scripture. He has named them. How many names did the Lord need for his stars? At least 10 to the 21st power worth of names. That's a lot of names. Okay, I had a baby book worth of names in my, in my office. I think there were 25,000 names there. Uh, that doesn't, that, that's only, what, 25 with three zeros. There's a whole bunch of zeros left. But yet the Lord can do that. Spurgeon says, he who heals broken hearts counts the stars and calls them by their names as men call their servants and send them on their way. Can you look up at the starry sky at night without praising him who made the stars? Anybody who's been camping far away from the city lights out in the dark knows that there are a lot more stars up there than what we can see. You know, I go to my backyard and there's a street light there and that light pollution kind of blanks out the stars. But when you get out in the really dark area, the night is just full of stars. He is the one who has placed them there. He is the one who has made them. He is the one who has named each of those stars. The Lord counts and names the stars, but look at five. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord counts and names the stars, but we find that it is impossible for humans to count his understanding. It is just beyond us. If you're not convinced by the sheer number of stars that we can see, that the Lord has made them and counted them and numbered them, that's just one aspect of his power and the extent of who he is. It is beyond our understanding. This is echoed again if you want to turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. And we'll see how it is echoed here in the prophet. His understanding is beyond our measure. We like to think that we can get a hand on things, but when it comes to God, gee, his, his righteousness, his, his inscrutable, his, his knowledge is, is without border, without ending, without limit. There is nothing that is outside of his knowledge, nothing without, that is outside of his sovereign control, nothing. Not one stray molecule is floating around there that he is not in control of. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. There is no single star out there that the Lord has misplaced. Have you seen a star... uh... 10 to the 20th power lately? I seem to have lost it. No, it's none of that. He knows where they all are. He would call it by its correct name. Verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? 
Do you not know and have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. And then you go you know, and read on, they rise up and, 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 and the wings and, and all that. He gives them that power and authority. Do you not know? Do you, do you doubt his ability? Do you doubt that the Lord grasps all of these things? Look at what he does in the very last, go back to verse uh, Psalm 147. The God who determined and named all of those stars loves the humble. Verse 6, the Lord supports the afflicted. He lifts up the humble. The God who has all the power and all the authority and all the might loves those who are humble. And it's not as if I love you because I'm the one with all the authority and you have to buy. It's not that. It's when we come to him and understand that and understand our position before him and realize in, in humble adoration that he is great and his love is extended to us. The Lord loves to lift up the humble. Now to the second section, verses 7 through 12. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre. He says, this is, uh, we are to take pleasure in, his, in, his, um, in praise of the Lord. He's the provider of all the creation. He goes on to list. He provides for the animals, the beasts. Uh, on it, he gives the birds what they need. He provides the rain. Uh, he's the provider, so we are to praise him for his rich provision of what he gives to us. Look at verse 10. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. And in this translation, loving kindness would be the same as mercy. And the Lord takes pleasure in those who wait for his mercy. The Lord's special delight and pleasure is in those who fear him and those who hope in his loving kindness. That is seems to be a special area of his delight. He doesn't delight in those who have the strength of a horse. Uh, he does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. And, and that's it, in, in how, how far or how fast a man can run and the power involved there. He takes pleasure in those who fear him. This is that awesomeness of fear. God is awesome. He is other. And that's the sense of fear that we have of him, not of, of trembling like he's going to smash us, but in this awesome holiness of our Heavenly Father and those who wait for his loving kindness. And we have to ask, is our hearts captivated by the greatness of our God? Is it captivated by his provisions or do we doubt God? Do we think that, he is, uh, that we are underserved in some way by the actions of our Heavenly Father? Do we come to him and complain and sort of, Lord, well, why don't you do this and why don't you do that? Or do we come to him and say, Lord, we praise you for these things that you have done and, and your great mercy and your great loving kindness. If we come to him and, and claim that we are underserved, what, what does that say about our souls? What does it say about the object of our love? Is the object of our soul's love our Heavenly Father? Or is the object of our soul's love our own self? 
See, we have, to, we have to realize this. There's a question here before us. What is it that we love? And if we go and complain to the Lord and we doubt his ability to provide, and we, we, we pick on him about, about his shortcomings, and they're not really his shortcomings. We realize that there are misunderstandings of him because he doesn't have shortcomings. Then it says that we are more concerned about us than we are about him. He who provides all of these things for us. John Piper has a book. It's called The Pleasures of God. And he asks the question there and answers it in a a good way, I like. Ask why God takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his love. And this is his answer. Surely it is because our fear reflects the greatness of his power and our hope reflects the bounty of his grace. Our fear reflects the greatness of his power and our hope reflects the bounty of his grace. And scripture says what hope does not disappoint. God has pleasure in those who hope in his love because that hope highlights this grace that he bestows upon us. So what does the object of your love say about your soul? What does the object of your love say about your soul? Let's look at this last section, 12 and on. This section especially focuses on the privileges that God has given his covenant people, his covenant people. Now remember, the Lord has accomplished all of these things for Israel. Look at verse 13. He has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons within you. He makes peace in your borders. And if this is coming out of the context of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and those walls and the the people who were uh, dispersed coming back into Jerusalem, then these are the great praises. He blesses your children. He makes peace within your borders. He fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool and on and on and on. Uh, So there are two things I want to highlight out of this section. And they're just simple and straightforward. 16 and 17. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? Now this is kind of out of the norm as an example of what the Lord does. I think, you know, this is like Jack Frost, the bad Jack Frost in the snowy, Frosty the Snowman movies or something like that. Uh, what is God doing? Has he become the ice king or something here? Uh, I really couldn't figure it out. So, um, you know, when you can't figure it out, you go to somebody who's smarter than you. So I went and I looked at what Charles Spurgeon had to say. He says this, None can stand before his heat. We often see... It, our Heavenly Father, and the fires of judgment and these things. But when he withdraws the fire and takes away the heat, the cold is equally as destructive. The cold is equally as destructive. And I thought about that. And I thought, yes, the Lord sends his, sometimes his, his punishment. We take that as heat. But what happens if he withdraws from us? And, and, I, and I tried to put an image of it. Okay, it's, it's snowing outside or the wind is blowing and you wake up in the middle of the night and you find that your wife has stolen all the blankets. What are you doing? You're shivering, okay? <laughs> You're shivering. Or maybe it's husband's steel blankets. I don't know. But 
and there you are. It's, it's this withdrawal that you find that the cold is bad. And if, if the Lord were to withdraw his hand from us, and, and who could stand that cold of not having the warmth of God's love? Who could stand that cold of not having his attention on us? Like that's what he is saying here. If God be gone, he goes on to say a little bit more, who can stand before his cold? If God be gone, if the spirit of God be taken away from his church or from any of you, who could stand before this cold? The deprivation is, a, is as terrible as if it were a positive infliction. Who can stand before his cold? Here I am in the middle of God's terrible power, yet I am protected by him. What a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God without any hope, without any Savior. That would be the cold of our Heavenly Father. Now verse 19. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He gives us his word. Now, in the Old Testament, his word came in the prophets, came through the kings. We have it here today. What do we do with this? How important is this word to us? You say, yes, it's a book, but it is so much more. It's just printing on the page, yet it is exactly what God wants us to have today. It's what he wanted the church to have 500 and 1,000 years ago. And 1,000 years from now, it will still be just as relevant and still be exactly what God wants us to have today. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? A few years ago, I told her the story. And I'm, I just, it's a perfect illustration. I have to tell it again. It was a Reformed pastor in Washington, D.C. His name is Mark Deaver. He went to London to give some lectures about the Puritans. And as he was in this church in London, England, he was giving a lecture about the Puritan mode and fashion of preaching. And here he was at this very large pulpit in this this church in, in London. And here on the side of the pulpit was a hook. And he began to describe the reason why that hook was there. He said that after a while when a pastor who came to a church proved his, his devotion to the word of God, the congregation would give to him a gift of an hourglass. And that hourglass was hung on the hook. And that church would give him a turn or two of the hourglass to preach. And as he said that, a woman in the front row gasped audibly, Oh, an hour or two? There would be no time left for worship. Okay? And... And, and Mark Deaver went on to explain. He said, when that gift was given to the pastor, there were people in that congregation in the 1500s who could still smell in their nostrils the smell of the burning flesh of their family and friends who had given their lives so that the word of God might be printed in their own language, so that the word of God might be preached in their own language and and taught in their own language there was this great struggle that no we can't get the word into the language of the people we can't have that there were times when the bible was actually chained to the pulpit so nobody in the congregation could, could get to it and they were pleased it was a blessing to be able to sit and have the word of god read to them in their own language and taught to them in their own language and they would willingly sit there for an hour or two as it was done that was their love for the word of God. 
God gives us his word. How do we think of his word? Do we think of it as, as oh, okay, it's a, it's a chore to read it, or is this a great blessing? There have been people throughout history who gave their lives just so we could have this and read this and know what the Father calls us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for, for this wonderful gift of your word, the gift of your power and sustaining grace in our lives, that you watch over us. Lord, we praise you for the, your mighty works and your deeds and how you sustain us and provide for the beast and the birds and, and, and for everything. We praise the Lord because it is pleasant. It is good to sing of your praises, Lord. It does something to us when we sing of your goodness and greatness and praise you and to know that you care enough to give us your word that we might understand who you are, that our countenance might be lifted up and in the midst of that, Lord, your Holy Spirit comes and does this great work in us. It is pleasant and good to sing the truth about you, of your power and your loving kindness towards us. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for this. In Jesus' name, amen.